My name is Lene McClellan, and I'm a salon owner in Chelsea, Michigan, and the creator of Radioactive. I've been inspired by the people I get to talk to every day to create a platform for those in and around our community to tell their stories, share what's important to them, and help us uncover what makes us human. Visit RadioactiveChelsea.com to see how you can get involved. Today I have the pleasure of sitting here with my friend, Bob Pierce. He's the former executive director of the Chelsea Area Chamber of Commerce. He's the recipient of the 2018 Faith in Action Humanitarian of the Year Award. And he's also on the leadership team for the Chelsea Area Festivals and Events, which brings us the Sounds and Sights Festival year after year. One thing that I've just recently learned about him is that he's also a Vietnam era veteran who had enlisted in the Air Force at the young age of 17. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lene, for bringing Radioactive Chelsea to life here in Chelsea. We, uh, we, we need this sort of candid, open, and free speech and free radio so that people get to know all of us the way we are, not just the way we're perceived. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bob. Bob can recall his first truly enlightening moment that helped shape the person he is today, and it happened during the Kent State Massacre. The Kent State Massacre was a turning point during the Vietnam War. Bob, from your perspective, what was happening during this time? You know, 1968, um, if you watch the newsreels and and the stories of the 60s, um, 68 was a summer of love. Things were happening in this country that were very different than had gone on in the entire history of America. And we had the backdrop of this, this war that was going on. The war was the Vietnam War, obviously. We went through all kinds of issues in 68. We saw the hippies at Haight-Ashbury. We saw music exploding all over the country that we'd never listened to or heard of before. And then in 1969, we had Woodstock. Well, I graduated from high school in 69, but I'd already enlisted in the Air Force. And there was a sense of perhaps confused patriotism amongst many of us. We also had the, the threat and the fear of the draft. I was not college material at that time. Um, Few colleges would have accepted my GPA, uh, but also I really, I, I just didn't feel like I should go to college. Uh, I came from a family that had a long tradition of military service, so that was my duty, I felt, at that time. My brother had just gotten back from Vietnam in 1968. He, he spent a, a very dangerous uh, tour of duty. Uh, ultimately, it took his life much many years later. Um, because of his Agent Orange exposure, but he was not wounded or in any way maimed or damaged, at least physically, uh, during his tour. But I felt it was my obligation to, to join the service. So I, I enlisted in 68. I, as I say, I signed my letter of intent then. I didn't go into the service until December of 1969. By 1969, after Woodstock, you know, things were changing in America. You know, we had so many more individuals, you know, military troops, people that were dying and, and, and just being maimed and, and injured in this war in Southeast Asia. You know, and every night 
on the news. Walter Cronkite, um, a, a historical fact, uh, before the Vietnam War, the evening news on the three networks was a 15-minute newscast. It was expanded to a half hour during Vietnam. And those were interesting newscasts because they gave you body counts. Every night you knew how many, how many people were killed. Wherever those numbers came from, uh, we just kind of looked at them and you shook your head. And of course it was 15 Americans killed and, and 7 million Vietnamese, whatever the numbers were. You just, you looked at them and, and they were numbers. You, you didn't understand. And as a, as a young man at 17, 18 years old, you, you just, you, you didn't know what to expect. So you had great blind patriotism and as well it should have been from World War I, World War II era parents. Um, the Korean conflict started putting a little damper, I think, on the enthusiasm for war, but nonetheless, you were still patriotic. But by 1969, you were starting to wonder, what in the world is going on here? I made my commitment, and I was committed to serving the, the military, and so I, I joined. And so, as a young 18-year-old, my I was inducted in Buffalo on December 2nd, 1969. Hopped on my first airplane ride to Lackland Air Force Base and went to basic training. So I spent my first Christmas away from my family um, on a drill pad in Lackland Air Force Base in driving rain. Um, my first New Year's away from home as a young kid was uh, in a barracks, uh, as John Prine says, in a warehouse of strangers with 60 watt lights. Um, but you, you were just indoctrinated into the military. At that point, you were still, certainly myself, still very much um, patriotic and felt that the war was something that we would want to share in because we wanted to be patriotic and support the war. Well, fast forward from there. Um, I came home on my first leave, and I went to our, our local bar. Remember in those days, 18-year-olds uh, 18 year olds had the, uh, the right to drink. And the bars were not drinking holes, you know, particularly. They were social gathering spots. So on my first leave, I was home, and all of my friends, all of my close friends, uh, were in college. And they were home, and I was looking around, and that's the first time I really realized that, you know, things were changed from our June graduation of 1969 to that January 1970 time. And everybody's hair kind of grew a little bit longer. Everyone's attitude was a little bit different. They all treated me like the dear friend that I was, and still, you know, to this day, I still have those dear friends. So they weren't discriminating, they weren't angry, they weren't um, uh, really gauging me for, for what I was or what I wasn't, but we were all friends. But I did notice a difference. So when I went back uh, to active duty after my leave, I was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent, frankly, all of my career there through a, a series of, of changes because of an unusual career field. Um, but when I got to Wright-Pat in January of 1970, Wright-Patterson had just experienced some major race riots. So inside the military, 
just like outside of the military, there are ra there's racial tension and racial hatred throughout all the base, throughout the community. Dayton, Ohio had suffered the riots just like Detroit in, in Buffalo. And it was a, it was a whole era of, of unrest. And lurking in the background every morning when I put on my fatigues to go into work was this thing called Vietnam. It wasn't really you know, front and center in our minds, certainly in my mind in those days as I was you know, going to my photo lab at Wright Pap. But it was front and center every night on the news, every newscast. And what was also front and center was here I was, 18 years old, um, totally on my own with a bunch of strangers. And I'm looking at how all the college campuses in America were exploding with riots. You know, the, the summer of love, the Haight-Ashbury peace love was seemed, seemed to have disappeared. We are now almost forming these armed camps of either you're with us or you're against us. Hmm. And it, it just continued. So I went to work. I did my job in the military, came back to the barracks. And you know what? We weren't soldiers at night. What we were were, were young kids hanging around, talking to our college buddies, talking to our college girlfriends watching the evening news and realizing that lots of things were going on in that world and we frankly became targets or perpetuators of that situation. And within the military you had people that were just you know blindly patriotic which is not a bad thing when you're in the military. I mean let's face it your your life is a danger and your your partner your you know, platoon, in my case, my flight, they all depended on all of us working together. So if you're at war, you better be together. But when we're sitting around the barracks at night, we weren't at war. And we were discussing just what is this thing going on called Vietnam? And why are the people that we admire and love most, that we grew up with, why are they so opposed to what, what, quote, we are doing? Because we were the military. So you continue that really through all of that year of, of uh, early 1970. And right after Richard Nixon announced the bombing of Cambodia, the college campuses around America just exploded. There were riots, there were sit-ins, there were takeovers from Columbia University to, you know, to Berkeley and Antioch University, by the way, which is very close to, uh, it's in Yellow Springs, Ohio, very close to Dayton, Ohio, and Antioch was a hotbed of the anti-war movement, as well as the home of Richie Fure and Poco, but I, I digress. <laughs> but, um, so we, we had, uh, in active duty, we were sitting there watching the evening news, watching what was happening in the world, and then knowing that 35 miles away, we had a local college campus that was exploding just like the rest of the, the campuses around America. And the college campuses, um, and this wasn't just the students, it was the professors, and it was people like my mother, who is an avid anti-war mother, parent, 
because she had experienced the horrors of World War I with her father, um, and just questioning what in the world is going on with our government and why are we expanding this war that doesn't seem to affect us a whole lot. That's what she would say to me. So that's, that's what was going on. It, it was, you know, every newspaper you picked up, every radio broadcast, every national TV news, you saw another campus that was having riots, having sit-ins, having takeovers. Cities were really starting to, to rumble again like they did in 68. And so Kent State which was May 4th, 1970. You know, Kent State was this quiet and still a very beautiful campus in Ohio. Um, they were experiencing the same as every other campus in America. They were experiencing unrest and students were very angry. So I, I, if I could, I, I'd like to, to, to explain my moment. Uh, so I was a photo lab technician and I was in the basement of a three-story building. And I was in, in the lab that afternoon, and our lab was totally dark. You know, you couldn't have any light come in as you're processing the negative film. And um, we had WHIO AM radio, a little radio in the corner, you know, that we had on all the time listening to the news. And the bulletin came across about 12.30 in the afternoon that Governor Rhodes had dispatched the Ohio National Guard to the campus of Kent State, and there was a shooting. At that time, at that first broadcast, we didn't know who was killed, but they said students had been killed. So this was that moment in time when Kent State became a national rallying cry. And I'm, I'm going to presume that there's probably some of the listeners to your podcast uh, that have listened to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and they've probably heard the song Ohio, and maybe they didn't understand because they didn't have the historical reference, but that song was written about the Kent State Massacre. So the impact of Kent State was social, was national, and it was a nightmare that lingers today for many, many people that were on campus or not on campus. The shooting, if, if I recall correctly, was done by the National Guard, correct? Right. Yes. To tame the riots, the protests at this college campus. Yes, yes, thank you. That's, um, the riots were going on, Governor Rhodes dispatched the National Guard to control and quell the riots. The thing that has changed since Kent State was Governor Rhodes gave the 17, 18, 19, 20, maybe 30-year-old National Guardsmen the ability to go on campus with live ammunition. And so some of these young men who were in the Guard were really the same age in the same ilk, if you will, of those students. They were armed and frightened. They were, you know, the students were rushing them, and when the commander gave the order to fire, they fired live ammunition. 
So we had the National Guard killing students. You know, blame can be cast on all sides. It was a horrible event. Lessons perhaps learned, perhaps not. But it was the, that is the turmoil, that is the anger that was in the crowd that day. That is the anger that permeated throughout America because we weren't sure what was going on. And when I say we, the active military, the college kids, and how about the parents that sent their kids off to war or sent their kids off to college? Right. How safe were they? So where were you at this time? Well, as I said earlier, I was in my dark room, and I, I'd like to uh, have a little sidebar because this is the, the most important part of, of my moment. So we had a three-story building, and we were mainly civilian. There were a few military. By May 1970, I'd become a vocal uh, opponent of the war. Most of the military, I'm sorry, most of the civilians that worked at the uh, at our photo lab were World War II or Korean era or frankly Vietnam era veterans who came back and had civilian jobs. So my view was that they were all very pro-Vietnam, uh, pro-government at that time. But we had one particular individual. Uh, his name is Jesse. And he was a, a shorter man, very muscular, worked out quite a bit. And um, if you go back and watch a, a cult movie from that day uh, called Joe, and Peter Boyle was actually in it. But Joe was the construction worker whose daughter was captured by these crazed hippies and taken to New York to you know, become in the hippie culture and his mission was to save his daughter. Well, it was, it was just typically Hollywood, so overblown. And the stereotypical Joe with his hard hat and his American flag on it became the, the target for anyone who is anti-war. So we nicknamed Jesse in my building, Joe, because he, he, he was our Joe. And he was just, he hated the long hair hippies and, and the beat goes on. So I'm in my dark room, the bulletin comes across WHIO radio of the shooting. Um, my recollection is that I just walked out of the room um, and I do know that I ruined all the film that I was processing. I was just so angry and so upset. Recall that I'm in the basement of a building that's three stories, two stories tall and the basement. So three stories away, my buddy Jesse, our Joe, Jesse was on the third floor, but somehow or other when I got out of my dark room, which seemed to be seconds, but might've been a minute, he was standing literally in my face. He'd made his way from the, down three floors, from the second floor to the basement, to walk in there and stare me in the eye. And his comment to me was, they should have killed every one of those long haired fuckers. So at that point, we had two, two of the civilian um, gentlemen that I worked with in the lab um, stepped in between us and saved what would have ultimately been a, a pretty ugly fight and probably the end of, of two careers um, because the military doesn't take kindly to uh, fighting over incidents like that. But here's the message that resonated with me at that point. Um, I have a, a, a pretty hefty temper. 
And at that moment, all I saw was red. I don't know if I would have physically harmed him. I think I would have. I, I was just so angry that this man had angered me to the point that I didn't care if I killed him or not. Well, we were separated. Um, the, the little bit of interaction we had uh, caused nothing more than a skirmish. The guys, you know, sent him back to his third floor and off we went. But over the course of the next few weeks, and actually the next few years, but certainly the next few weeks, you know, I started to look internally to myself. And my thought was, you know, you pride yourself with being a pacifist. You pride yourself with not wanting to injure other people. But man, you just about did that. You know, you were out of control. So I knew I had to find a way to control my anger and my emotions. And to do that, I really started to explore a different angle and say, why is another human being, you know, coming down three flights of stairs to stand in my face and, and say what he said to me and feel like it's okay to anger me and it's okay to kill those long-haired fuckers. Is he really evil? What motivates someone to have that level of anger just like mine? Hmm. Wow. So, um, at that time I was exploring a lot of different faiths and uh, and my, my late wife uh, bought me uh, a Meher Baba book in my early days of, of ex exploring Zen and other things. And and I, so I, I had a, a rich background of different philosophies to look internally and say, how do we manifest those feelings and how can we change them so that we can go forward in life? Because there's such unease. That, that certainly isn't my personality. That wasn't my personality. It wasn't my desire. But it did overtake me. And my friend Jesse, you know, he had the same concerns I did. He was fearful for his family's safety. He was frightened that the communist threat would take over his life. He also was concerned about his job and, and what the military as a civilian would do for him. So I set out explicitly on a mission personally that over the next, what turned out to be almost two years, was to work with my friend Jesse and find common ground. Um, it wasn't easy. Uh, he wasn't nearly as open to conversation as I was. Um, but because of, of the, the length of this podcast, which go on for five days, if I told you everything, the bottom line was this. We evolved into an understanding of each other. It evolved into a friendship, frankly, that basically said, I, I don't like your politics. I don't like what you're thinking. But, you know, I like you as a person. And we have very strong common goals. And in this case, fun fun thing that happened was that I loved audio 
and he was actually in the mail order audio equipment business. So he and I became um, kind of quasi business partners for a while. We never could put the business together totally. But when I left the military in 1973, Jesse and I were not only friends, but I was buying some audio equipment from him and then reselling it you know, to my friends at a good price. And we came to a realization that, you know, um, there is a world that, where we can peacefully coexist. I didn't try to change him and convince him that I was right. He didn't convince me that he was right. He didn't change me to understand that his way was the way. But what we came to realize is that, you know, this is a pretty big world out here. And the only way we're all going to make it work is we have to find that common ground and work together. That's what I've taken away from, from my, my Kent State experience, which, uh, as I said to you earlier as we were talking, um, uh, honestly, there's, there's never a week that goes by in my life since that moment that I don't reflect on that, that exact moment of the anger that I had toward Jesse. And the outcome was that of mutual respect working together to find common ground and that is how we have to go forth bob i love that <laughs> i have tears in my eyes right now just thinking about how how applicable that is today like we live in a world right now that's so divided one way or another everyone is so radical about so many different things and as you're you were speaking i I was only thinking about the similarities that I feel in that today and the lesson that can be taken from that in that we do all have very different perspectives and we have very different backgrounds and reasons why we feel the way that we do. And maybe there is no right answer, but there's certainly many wrong answers, right? There are plenty of wrong answers. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love what you just said because it's, you know, today's, what, what we're experiencing today, I mean, let's face it, is not much different than what we experienced during Vietnam. Many of our, of your young listeners, you know, look at Vietnam as a history page, um, as well they should. But I can say to them, if you have that feeling of, of anger and despair and frankly distrust, of the government, that's exactly what the feeling was in America. Was it universal? Of course not. That's why we had the conflict. Not everyone thought that Richard Nixon was wrong or that Robert McNamara was wrong. And one of those people, frankly, was my brother. As a Vietnam vet, I totally respect and understand why he thought that conflict was right because he nearly gave his life, ultimately did give his life for that war. You don't want to think that you're in a, in a battle, in a war that is no meaning whatsoever. I think history has told us, and Robert McNamara himself in his book, Vietnam, The Retrospective, told us what the Vietnam War was all about. Let's hope that we don't have another today retrospective telling us that some of the things we're going through today uh, are really meaningless. I think we have to find meaning in what we're doing. And our, our 
from our young kids, from our children, up to our grandparents today, um, there's just great turmoil, just like there was during Vietnam. We got through that. There's some scars that will never heal, but we'll get through it again. But if we don't compromise, if we don't work with each other, if Bob Pierce can't find the good in Jesse, and Jesse can't find the good in Bob, we sure as hell will never make any progress. Right. Is there anything at this point that you would like to add? Radioactive Chelsea can give a voice to so many people in our community. And, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of being in this community for 27 years. And there's so many great and wonderful things about this town. And one of the reasons I'm here is because it's a, it's a great town. It's a fun town. It's a safe town. But you also have to recognize that with everything I've, I do and have been involved with, uh, we also see the things that aren't so special and wonderful about this town. We all have struggles. Um, I was just sharing earlier, I was reading a book and an ancient Hebrew philosopher said, the saying is, be kind for everyone you meet is encountering a great battle. I think we have to remember that. You know, our town is exceptional. Our town is good. But there are an awful lot of great battles going on. And what can we do? We can understand, be sympathetic, be empathetic. Yes, but how about let's get involved. Let's get involved and let's help the people that are having the battles. Let's make them survive because they deserve that as well as we do. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. If you're interested in reaching Bob Pierce, you can do so through RadioactiveChelsea.com and hit the Contact Us form. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Radioactive Chelsea. Sign up at our website, RadioactiveChelsea.com, to receive notifications for when the next podcast is released.